And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Jasina Kamenik, one of the co-hosts of the Sustainability Story podcast. In this podcast, we take a close look at all matters relating to sustainability by engaging chats with thought leaders on subjects which are driving the momentum to change. Today, we're focusing on private shareholder engagements on material ESG issues. And actually, on this topic, there was a study which was recently released by Rob Bauer, Jeroen Derval, and Colin Tissen in 2023, a couple of months ago, perhaps. In this, the authors examine private shareholder engagements with about 2,500 listed firms about environmental, social, and government issues from as far back as 2007 to 2020. The authors look at the extent to which private engagements address financially material ESG issues and contribute to firm performance. However, I know by talking to Bob before this podcast that he would actually also share with us some of the thoughts on what happens if you don't engage. And I think that's actually a really interesting point. Now, let me introduce my partner in this chat today. Rob is a professor of finance, chair of the Institutional Investors at Maastricht University School of Business and Economics in the Netherlands. His academic research is focused on pension funds, and I know he's written quite a lot about that, so I'd love to engage with him on that topic on another day. Strategic investment policy, mutual fund performance, responsible investing, shareholder activism, and corporate governments. Rob is also director of the European Centre for Corporate Engagement at Maastricht University and executive director of the International Centre for Pension Management in Toronto. So, Rob, um, I know you're you're very active on this topic, and of course, for us um, in Europe, um, you know, we're we're both based in Europe. Um, I'm leading for CFA Institute on regulatory advocacy in the EMEA region, and corporate governance really has been seeing a fast forward from, I would say, the mid 2010. It was always sort of stuck in that you know you used to have to engaged, but institutional investors felt quite passive about it, and it was a ticking-the-box exercise. Of course, you know, if you had many companies to uh, to engage with, you really ended up with a tick-the-box. But we know that that is not enough. Back in 2021, CFA Institute wrote a paper on corporate governance and ESG disclosures in the EU. And in there, we fell back on looking what had been happening with institutional engagement. Because in 2016, when we worked together with London Business School, with David Pitt-Watson and George Dallas, we saw that there was an awareness that institutional investors had to engage on behalf of other stakeholders. But this was very sort of divided. And the the sense of of, um, ownership was not really there. So now in 2021, when the debate is 
fully engaged at the EU level. We addressed a series of attention points to regulators, to stakeholders, to shareholders and to companies, saying that if you really wanted to have longer term horizon in investment decision making, you really need to embed this issue of engagement, not only shareholders, but stakeholders. There should be a consistent dialogue and it should not be stop and start and look to the annual meeting. It should really be a continuous mechanism. Directors, management and investors need to be better aligned, especially if we look at the challenges on the climate and generally environment, but also social. National supervisors have to be more engaged at the EU level. We suggested using a scoreboard to enable supervisory convergence because this is one of the challenges in Europe. And we also know that, of course, the European supervisory authorities have a sort of grey mandate to look at corporate governance. It's, it's there, but it's not really theirs. Somehow, corporate governance has got stuck at the national level. And, of course, we do need to engage it at a European level and at a global level, of course. So um, this this is a really, you know, I think that's where your research, going back all this way to 2007, is, is really interesting to, to share that with, your, with the listeners. I would also say that lack of engagement from the investors affects also how they're being seen by management. And I, and, and I think it's a two-way process. It's not just... You know, there is a duty on the investors, the management also has a duty, but both these duties have to have to fit together. And there has to be a, a conscious effort to build this road of dialogue. And the quality of the dialogue is, as I said before, incredibly important. Now, turning to your search, can you share with us a little bit the exact scope and the purpose, where where it came from, how, how you how you looked at it and and um just some of the general principles of this study. Yes, thank you, Yuzina, for the introduction. And uh, it, in fact, you you gave a very broad picture of the topic. So I'm going to give the, an answer to your question, but then I'm going to weave out to do a little bit of the things that you said as well, if that's okay. So the purpose of our study is all these activities that are happening to engage with companies, and it could be private engagement by one single investor with a particular company, or it could be a collaborative engagement through the PRI or any other vehicle. How successful are they actually? There's not a lot of research on that, let alone looking at issues like does materiality of the topic impact what is engaged and also how successful the engagement is. That was sort of the reason I did this. But if you if you branch out, my co-authors and I, we, we also as academics are very interested in the question, what is the impact? of what we observe of all these divestments happening in, for instance, the fossil fuel industry, the tobacco industry, the coal industry, does that impact? That's also a sort of engagement. You could say a sort of a ethical Wall Street walk. You kick them out for ethical reasons or for whatever reasons. And how does that impact? Does it actually lead to something better in, let's say, in real terms, environmental or social or governance terms? Uh, so that's a question we have. Then on the on the other hand, we also observe that a lot of people, of investment managers, uh, actually integrate ESG information into their portfolios. Does that make sense? Does it make sense to buy the green ones? Do you really make them greener by buying them? And what happens to the brown companies? Are they actually held by people who don't care? And is that actually helping at a total level the whole situation? So. 
there was this this big ask. The panacea is engagement. So we have to be active owners. We have to vote. We have to uh, talk. We have to maybe even litigate, uh, whatever. And we can do private shareholder engagement. That was sort of the, the reason that we that we started this study because there are a few studies. I can tell you a bit about that also in a minute that already looked at it, but in a different time as, uh, period, as you said. But And also our scope is global. We look at global companies, how they are engaged and what the effectiveness of the engagement is. I think it's important you mention that your study is global. So this podcast reaches a global audience and sustainability does need to be looked at in a global manner. And of course, you know, it's a problem when the EU has been advancing greatly on this topic and other regions are perhaps lagging behind. I think one of the issues that at CFA Institute, we have been noticing talking to global regulators, there is a serious worry about how we're dealing with transition. And if you could mention a little bit about your findings on also, you know, how this perspective can be broached and how, how more information can come out about the transition for regulators to enable them to monitor that we are moving towards the right Cool. Yeah, of course, many of the initiatives like in the EU and the, the, the new international board that has been established uh, to, to get information from companies is already bringing a lot to this. So if there's disclosure that we can trust, which I think is still at a too low level of trust and informativeness, but if that in gradually increases through these initiatives, we should be able to observe how companies are changing in this transition. And then, of course, the engagement activities, all the, all the levers you have, like voting, filing, privately engaging, can be way more worthwhile because you're, you know what you're talking about. You can hold them accountable on that information. Whereas now, what, what happened a lot in the past, what I've seen in the data also in a study shareholder proposals, is that companies also, when they get a nasty question, for instance, on executive compensation, they give back some information on, for instance, a sustainability report in very general terms, and then everybody is happy. And so that should not be possible anymore. We should really talk about the stuff that we need to talk about. But I want to, so I like your, your interruption because you essentially you said this is a global topic, not just from a company perspective, but also a just transition perspective. And, you know, the emerging markets will be hit most by some of the climate change related challenges that we have. And biodiversity is probably similarly. But I think there's another dimension to this, and that's a dimension for who are these asset managers and particularly the asset owners actually investing. They are investing for you and me. You know, I'm a civil servant uh, type person in the, in the Netherlands. I'm a university professor. So ABB does my pensions, but I don't have a say in how they invest whatsoever. So I think I have to be in the pension fund. I have to give money to the pension funds. There's no way out for me. And I think it's good because that makes me safe for my pension. But I would feel, I would like to see more asset owners and asset managers really reaching out to, to the client base on what they want. And engagement would be a nice vehicle for that. So if you, if you interact with your clients in the financial domain, then you, you, and you know what their preferences are, you could also make products that make them uh, happier or they're more tailored to their needs. Uh, there are a lot of issues there as well, let me be clear, because, you know, um, as a board member of a not-to-be-mentioned pension fund once said to me, you shouldn't give them what they want, you should give them what they need. Well, there's something in it, you know, it's a pension after all. Nonetheless, I think 
this democratization that you that that some people are advocating for has an important point to get legitimacy of both asset owners and asset managers on this topic, and the, the, their license to operate also links to them. So it's quite a multidimensional problem. It's it's global. It's north south. It's different topics. It's the end owner. So lot to talk about. And I think legitimization is a crucial word you used because we have all these very glossy addendums to annual reports. We have fund managers saying we're, you know, we're, we're looking at ESG. But really that part that is missing is that communication to the ultimate client. And is the ultimate client really understand what, what is being done and how it's being done? It's a challenge. And I know financial users associations are continuously engaging on this, so um, it, it's a I'm, I'm actually, uh, it's, it's related to engagement, but it's a bit drifting, so you just cut me off if you think I'm, I'm going too much to the right or to the left of the discussion. But the EU regulation in MIFID is of such a kind, I'm not a lawyer, so I have to be careful, uh, adds from private banking and wealth management organizations that they actually elicit the preferences of their clients before they, just like they did with risk preferences, they now have to do this with sustainability preference from August 22, I think. So now the question is, how do you do that? Well, if I'm a banker, I could, I mean, this this is just a could, uh, create a questionnaire that really uses the social desirability answering that a lot of people have. And then the end result is, yes, Rob, you should go into sustainable private equity which on the other hand also gives the bank a bit more bucks for uh, as, and fees. So there are a lot of potential conflicts of interest. So I think that there needs to be some regulatory intervention on how you measure those preferences. And if you know the preferences, whether it's in a bank, a wealth management, pension fund, insurance company, you can use your whole responsible investment policy. You can use it in your investment policy because you can Build, for instance, the topics that you engage on, on some of the topics that most of your clients find important. Or you can tell clients that you engage on those topics and you will get the clients that really like those topics. So that's many dimensions. Now, and I think I think that's important, that that, um, that link you mentioned to, to Mythit and how it could be built out. Because it's, it's Mythit at the moment is still very much a tick-in-the-box exercise. Yeah. So it needs to go beyond the tick in the box. And I think that that is a challenge. I want to bring you a little bit back to your study and where and ask you a question on when you were looking at, at all, you know, all this data from 2007. How are you seeing the sort of progress of institutional investors pursuing risk adjusted return on capital whilst actively engaging on material ESG? Did you see a change in the 2000? You must have seen a change, but how, how, how did you measure it? So what we did here, that is very important to understand, is we used the data that were made available by an engagement agency that does the engagement for a large group of investors globally. And, and that group of investors, I cannot reveal the names. I even don't know the names in detail, but they used this agency. Uh, collectively, it's sort of a collective vehicle. So that's and because that's one of the big issues in engagement. You know, as a today, uh, our university also was sort of asked by some NGO, "What are you doing on the fossil fuel side? 
are you engaging with these companies and and how are you doing that give us evidence uh, and then and then interestingly our university doesn't have any uh, fossil fuel in the portfolio right now uh, for for one of the reasons uh, uh, as a university we also give a signal but of course we also could not engage with just whatever 10 million or 15 million uh, that we have in our endowment what impact will you have so we should use our resources elsewhere that same question holds for the clients of this agency but if you combine it and at a really bigger level you see that happening in the, in the climate action 100 plus for instance where all these bigger investors and asset managers and owners together jointly focus yeah and then when you then look at what they do because that's your question then uh, through time you can see that uh, that the agency more and more also focus on topics that are related to environmental and social issues but and that they also make a decision more in the confidence and the environmental domain i have to say to focus on financially material issues when they engage and why is that and i thought about that think about you know th this is you, you alluded to it when you started off the discussion this is a, an exchange of our dynamics between an investor and a company so the company might not be aware of some really financially material issues. Then this investor comes by, explains it nicely in a, in a collaborative way. There might be something that you could do better, which is also good for your bottom line. Well, I would have predicted, and we also found this, that material issues, companies are more responsive. But of course, if an investor comes by, maybe even from a totally different jurisdiction with different cultural backgrounds, whatever, and then suddenly says to a U.S. company as a European uh, engager, for instance, you have to change this, that, or that. It's not financially material, but we think that is what you have to do. Well, then, of course, companies are less responsive. And interestingly, what you said in the beginning is also the following. I, I did interviews with Dutch CEOs in 2021. And we talked for 90 minutes with CFO, CEOs, and sustainability managers of Dutch publicly listed companies. And what I heard a lot was, the investors don't have a clue. When I talk to investors, I hear the companies don't have a clue. So there's a huge disconnect. So we are at the start of this. And what, what our study shows is that, yes, there is a there seems to be a connection between companies that are being engaged on financial and material issues that they also have in the short term, let's say 12 to 18 months, higher returns on the stock market. But as an academic, I cannot prove at all whether the causality exists between the engagement and the so answering your question the intention is there because they tend to target financially material issues and they they mostly use the the SASB, um, framework for that so within this industry this topic is really important etc but uh, uh, whether that really leads to something, it's too early to say. So we have to keep on studying this. It is a really important topic. Does it all make There's a lot of money flowing in this business. But does it make sense? That's a big question to ask. Yeah, and I, I, I really like what you, what you said about your interviews with Dutch CEOs. I mean, you talked to investors saying, you know, that they, there is still a lot of uncomfortable uncomprehension and sort of not understanding where the other is coming from. And I think, you know, we, we all need to talk the same language. Um, this is crucial. Um, if we don't talk the same language, we cannot possibly hope to, to, to build a common, uh, a common goal. 
And there, I think a lot can be done by engaging with the financial users, the board, sit together, really try to understand each each other's point of view. And I, I think one of the, in, in, in several of my brainstorming sessions with other investors, fund managers, academics on corporate governance, what was really interesting, I think, is, is uh, this sense of that you need to be able to sit in each other's seat from time to time. It's just like when we talk about to regulators from the industry, again, you know, there's a divide sometimes. Do regulators really understand the industry? Does the industry really understand the perspective of the regulator? So my job yeah. at the is actually to be that bridge. And I think your job is that too, to be to build those bridges. And I think that's, that is absolutely crucial to get this understanding. Now, in your research, you know, we talked to, you, you talked a little bit about sort of materiality, but are the rates different? Of course, we know climate, environment is, is at the top. But what are you seeing in, in terms of also social and governance issues? Is there an increase from 2007 on those topics or did they stay fairly stable? No, there, there, there. I mean, it depends on whether an increase really is informative, because you may have more engagement, but whether they are more effective is a different thing. But what you see is that, first of all, most engagement are still on governance-related stuff, and then you have the more traditional topics, and the more, let's say, for instance, is the chair and the CEO the same person, which is still the case of fifty percent of U.S. companies, as it, which we in Europe don't understand why that is the case. Uh, so that's that's one thing executive compensation. And there's, of course, also this link between governance and sustainability. So sometimes it's very difficult to, to disentangle them. That's one thing I see. I also see that within the E and the S, there's way more attention for E. And why is that? Because environmental issues are perceived, whether that is correct is a different thing, as more financially material. That's also what SASB does. So, but that is, that is quite a, a tough one because if you think about, again, this perspective of NGOs who impact people who are the eventual clients of all those organizations. And so civil society is really involved in all of this. And, and these asset owners, the clients of pension funds, but also banks and, and asset managers, they also are, let's say, impacted by what these NGOs and civil society organizations do. So human rights and other issues are also important, obviously. But they somehow do not end up as much in those form. And, and why is that? So I, I taught a group of uh, pension fund board members uh, a few uh, months ago in the U.S. And they, are, they, they really feel like, you know, we have to be very careful to say anything that, that sort of signals we're not doing it for the financial risk-adjusted return reason. The fiduciary duty comes up. It's always there, this sort of damo glass hanging above the pension fund board members. And that's that's a tough one. It's also the risk-averse way. If you would be a pension fund board member, so you want to have a risk-averse decision-making process, I mean risk for your own sake, then that's the easiest thing to do. But do we solve problems with, with that? Uh, that's a different thing. So it's a tough one. What was really interesting, that CMA Institute, and I was involved with this, we did some research together with our German society on the engagement of employees into and, and feeding into the board, you know, through through this, this de- the structure they have with the with the committee uh, exactly. Uh, I think we thought that might have been quite an interesting way to bring in sort of the broader context, you know, the social 
some of the sort of different environmental issues rather than just the climate focus, which is, you know, the, the big thing that is driving this publicity, etc. So I, I, what do you think of that? Do you, th do you think that could be something that could be explored more? Now, it relates a bit to what I said about asking the clients. Here we get another stakeholder, which is the employee, which of course knows a lot about the company. And they know way more about the company than many other players, also even analysts in my view, because they are there. They know what's going on, of course, local. So that's a different thing. And also at a different level of, of information. But nonetheless, they have information on what's going on in the firm, what's not going well, what culturally doesn't go well, and what socially, environmentally, or even governance-wise doesn't go well. So I think it really would help. That role is not there in the Anglo-Saxon world. They, they have one-tier boards with uh, executives and non-executives. There's nobody representing the, the workforce. If, if anything, there is this body of the, the work council that, that is fighting with the, with the management on issues like this. So I think this is typically Europe. In, in the Netherlands, we have something similar. It's not exactly the same, but I guess uh, the way a supervisory board in the Netherlands works has quite some, some overlap with how it works in, the, in, in Germany. So the, the Rheinland model. But, you know, that, that is interesting. So I, I talked to some, uh, some NGOs and I told them about the potential impact that workforce could have. And then the NGO said, it's all great. Uh, yes, they're one stakeholder. But what about all those stakeholders that are suffering because of the company's exercises in whatever country? Don't forget about them, they say. So you can make the problem as big as you want. And one other thing I wanted to mention, also given your previous question, is when you look at the engagements, then the number of engagements on anything related to the new kid on the block, which is biodiversity and natural capital, is very low, also in recent years. And uh, the, the, the same holds for if you talk to those company CEOs and you ask them, do you have a policy? And that was two years ago, I, I have to admit. Well, they have no clue. They, uh, I, a very small number of companies have a biodiversity policy, let alone some actions that make sense. So this is something that companies will be flooded by uh, and that investors will also target because it's really picking up and uh, the, the relationship between biodiversity and climate change is also there. It's not unrelated. So it, it's exacerbating each other. It is, it is a dynamic phase that we're in. Yes. And I think, you know, what you, what you say is that you can't just take one point in isolation. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the world's complex and um, sort of paradoxically, of course, artificial intelligence, big data might help us to encompass the, you know, the broad spectrum of, of all this we need to take into account. And I'm going to ask you a final question on this sort of, you know, do, do you think the, the use of big data, the use, for example, the, the structure that we're trying in Europe with this European single access point, the availability of data, you know, how we share data also to the final client. Are we going about it the right way? Are there any issues you think we should we should think about? Well, I'm, I'm not a specialist in AI, although I, I did a, a study using uh, AI technology because a co-author of mine was really good at it to check how pension funds are actually talking about sustainable investments, but are they also walking? And we used an AI type method to uh, tax mine all the annual reports of the last 10 years. And then what you find indeed is that they are talking more than they're walking uh, and executing, but that is a different thing. So AI 
I, I think I want to go back to the data issue. So so it's 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 related to AI, but I feel more comfortable to talk about the data. Why is this really important in this domain? Let's take the first the example of Climate Action 100 plus. So I'm an academic. I'm observing this. This is a great case study. And so you got all those people working together in different countries and. Uh, asset manager one looks in the U.S. at these companies that reports back to uh, to this group, and every one has. So, the, where is all the data on this? How is it stored? How is all this information stored that is going on in the under the radar privately, but also even, I mean, if you want to know what's happening in the U.S. stock market with the filing of shareholder proposals, the SEC gives all the information. It's a lousy way to get it because. We worked on that in a different project. That was like my colleague Michael Wies. He worked like crazy to to look go through all the twelve thousand at the time file shareholder proposals on all these topics. It's not readily available, and if it's not readily available, we can also not investigate whether things are effective, yes or no. So, as an academic, I have a this is a cry for help. Then you also don't have to be you should not be naive on this because there's a reason why it's not shared. One reason is because it's costly uh, because to share all this, for instance, the climate action, individual information. You know, what you actually need is what we got in the data that we did the research on is an audit trail. I asked this to the company at this point in time, even the hour. I had this connection, that connection. I sent an email. I called to people. I, I went to the office. I talked to the CEO. I did another call. And then we achieved this. Then you got an audit trail of the engagement and you can see any causality, which is already difficult because you do not observe what others are doing. So you never know. Engagement success has many fathers, I can tell you. Whenever something happens at Shell that is successful in the eyes of engagers, everybody says we did it. But of course, not everybody did it. Somebody was more effective than others, but we don't know. In order to learn from this, academics need access to data. And there's one final reason why it's difficult to get those data, because there are conflicts of interest as well. The big asset managers, and you, you know, we all know about what Larry Fink has gone through with BlackRock in the, in the past years, they don't have an incentive to say publicly out loud what they have done with a particular oil company, for instance, uh, on the engagement side and then tell the whole, the whole world. So we cannot learn from that. Only BlackRock will, will see that information. So it's, 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 a, it's a tough game that we're in. But as you said in the beginning, to really make progress, we need to work together more. So who's coordinating that? Probably some central banks who are, in my view, uh, leaders in this, in this world, especially in Europe. Uh, maybe some investors that are seeing the light. Uh, but I think they are mainly to be found in the asset owner space, less so in the asset manager space because the conflicts of interest and the dilemmas and trade-offs, it's really tough for them. It's not a value judgment I make. I just understand that they're in a tough position. Yeah, that makes it that, that, we, that we probably are go, making less progress than we actually want. I think this is, this is the very good final point you made, that we're making less progress than we want. And secondly, your cry for help as an academic to have more uh, access to data. I would like to end with a big thank you to you, Rob, because you've been extremely open. You, we've, we've managed to, to encompass a vast subject into a 30-minute conversation. But I would like to end with a quote from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. When Mark Antony says, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at flood leads to fortune. 
And I think we need to catch that tide. So with this, a big thank you to you. To my listeners, look forward to the next podcast, which will come along in a couple of weeks from one of my co-hosts, Andres Vinelli or Deborah Kidd. I hope I look forward to, to many more conversations on this topic. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.